Hey, uh, good evening, everyone. I'm Tony Mann. Thank you for coming to the Art of the Interview. And I'd like to thank everyone at Coney Allen Baby. Please uh, tip your staff over here. And I'd like to introduce you all. Tonight's guest is Walter Lohr. Let's hear it for Walter. Yeah. I'd like to introduce you to author and filmmaker Stephen Blush. Thank you for coming. What you're about to see tonight is part of a series. Once a month, we sit down with one of the great minds of rock culture. I know the backstories and the questions to ask, which is why we call this the art of the interview. So thank you for coming. Uh, tonight's guest needs relatively little introduction to many of you. His work with Johnny Thunders and Jerry Nolan from the New York Dolls in The Heartbreakers literally set the bar for dangerous rock and roll for decades to come, and he still makes it happen. Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it. LAMF, Walter Lohr. Hello. So thank you for coming. And um, you know, uh, and, um, you've done some really great stuff in New York rock music. But I just wanted to kind of go back and talk a little about your story. Um, first, let's talk about you know, your family. I guess you were. Uh, you know, born a post-war baby boom, kind of come from Queens, go over to Nassau. There's you and your brothers. Well, we'll talk about your brother Richie right, later, right, right. but just give us a little flavor of the, your family growing up. Well, I was born, and it was a nice little house. And we moved to another little house. And uh, what? Uh, my, my father used to play Broadway shows. He used to love Broadway show music. Uh, of Oklahoma, My Fair Lady. And he blasted through the house all the time. So that's how I got introduced to music uh, as a kid. And then, um, and then you're, like, you're a teenager when the British invasion happens, right? Well, that's what changed it all. Because uh, as a kid growing up, I would be buying Chubby Checker records and stuff like that to, to dance at parties. I, I, I used to like to dance. But then when the British invasion came, that's what changed the world. It was like it was a whole, like all of a sudden it became a lifestyle. And I love the music. I love the looks. You know, the American bands were like, you know, they're like the, the Grateful Dead. They, uh, they look like they were bums in a, in, in a house somewhere or something like that. But the British bands, you know, they knew how to dress, they knew how to play, and it was all based on blues. So that's when I started saying, gee, this is sort of interesting. Maybe I'd like to do something along these lines. And um, that's how I developed. And now I was in college, <clears throat> believe it or not, and I started playing guitar with some friends in the school. We'd get together, there was a music room that we'd hang out in. And I started jamming with bands and stuff like that. And I was learning. That's how it started. I had taken guitar lessons when I was 12 years old, but the fucking guy was only teaching me Mary Had a Little Lamb and Camp Town Races. So I said, this is boring as shit. Yeah. So, so I stopped it after six months and didn't get a hang of it. But um, in college, with the British Invasion and all the blues stuff coming out, it, it started. I took it seriously. And then I started my first band on my senior year of college. Called, it was called Bloodbath. <clears throat> and we had our first gig. And, um, and we played a few years, and then I jumped to another band, the Demons and uh, the Heartbreakers. Yeah. So going back, um, you were going to a lot of the Fillmore shows, right? Were you kind of hanging out on the scene? Or right, all in the 60s. Yeah, so, so kind of give us a flavor and how that was different from what you would, would be later become known for, I guess, or, or go on to do. Because well, it was it, a, different, a different spirit, I guess. Yeah, it was the 60s, and people were like, uh, you know, smoking pot or whatever, taking LSD. I used to take it every weekend, but it was, um, so 
I wanted to see all the bands. So I'd go, so me and a friend of mine from college, we, we'd get on, we'd take LSD, go, go to this botanical garden across the street every Friday afternoon, because it was up in the Bronx and there's a big garden up there. So, so we'd take LSD, get spaced out, walk around the garden for four or five hours, come back to the school, hang out in this music room until about 10 or 11 o'clock, and then get out to the Fillmore. And it was mostly for the British bands and stuff like that, but we'd see other bands as well. And every show that I ever went to back then, I would see who I later came to know was Johnny Thunders. And he was always dressed up in the best clothes, and he had his, it, it was with the same girl most of the time. But he was always, at every show I went to, he was always there. And he was at Woodstock and all his festivals. I just couldn't believe it. This guy was like a fly on the wall everywhere I went. So, and, and he would see me, and I would see him, but we never actually were introduced until later on. Right. So, so, but, you, so you graduate, I'm sorry, so you graduate college as a chemist working for the well, FDA or something? Is that how I Yeah, I had a minor degree in chemistry. I started on chemistry, but then I changed you know, halfway through because you know, the questions were longer than the fucking answers <laughs> on the test, so it was ridiculous. So I changed over to English literature, but um, I got a job in the FDA when I got out of college because I had enough, I had a minor in chemistry, you call it, so, so I, I was testing drugs before I started taking them. <laughs> I said. But it was, it was like, you test all these weird drugs like cough medicine drugs or, uh, you know, quinidine and all these things, and you just test for purity and what have you. Mm -hmm. And food, you test, there was a food section where we'd get all these weird, like, wines from China. They'd have mouse fetuses in the bottom of the bottle. It was, and they'd have these claims like, it'll cure bad dreams, it'll cure your mother's gout or whatever. It was the weirdest stuff. You'd see that would come into these places. But so I was there for like uh, four or five years, something like that. Right. So that kind of bisects with when uh, you're seeing the New York Dolls or around that time. You're, so right. maybe you left the job or something. But but you're very early on seeing this band, and you're you're kind of checking them out. Just kind of talk about. I mean, this has been talked about, but like it was a, such a different spirit. I used the word spirit before, but it was a, like a new thing that was totally happening all of a sudden. Right. So so the late '60s, early '70s, rock and roll had, had gotten to this point where people were playing. You know, the two-hour solos, there were drum solos in every record that would go on for 10 minutes. It was getting sort of boring. It was, it was, it was getting overdone with all the um, instrumentalists. You had to have a, a degree from Juilliard to play for half these bands, stuff like that. It was a nightmare. So, so, as, so we started hearing about this, you know, this band that was playing. I, I think the Mercer Ross Center might have been the first time I saw them, or at one of those law parties, I forget. But... So I figured, oh, let's go check out this band. You know, the, the whole thing is there. And it was, there was a party. There were a couple other bands playing. So I saw them, and, and then I said, holy shit, there's that kid I've been seeing for the last, like, 10 years at the Fillmore and every other concert that I've been, I've been going to. And it was Johnny. He was playing with the Dolls. And, and the fact that it, it was, the Dolls was, was good. I, I mean, uh, to this day, I, I call them the grandmothers of punk because they were really... Um, they brought everything back, at least in New York anyway, and, and probably everywhere else, but they brought rock back to the three-minute, the two, three-minute song that was like fast, slow, fast and, and to the point, and, and, and you were in and out of it. And it was a whole, it was actually new at the time, even though it wasn't new, because it had been like that in the 50s, but they changed it all. But it was a breath of fresh air, so they were like the, the coolest things to happen at the time. But so, what was like the highlight of them? I was friend, uh, my, our late friend Don Hill used to always talk about the Waldorf Astoria show, for instance. I don't know if you've been to that, but was yeah, there was like there. an incredible moment? That's what he would always say was the great moment of the New York Dolls. But I mean, I don't know. Maybe you have 
That was probably uh, their peak, in, I guess, in New York. I mean, they, they played a lot of places, but that was definitely a big party. And uh, I, I was there, and when I was seeing Todd Rundgren, because I think he was in the middle of doing their second album at the time with them. And it was, it was, it was a cool place. I'd never been to the Waldorf before, and it, it was a beautiful spot. But, and yeah, the, the Waldorf Astoria had never seen anything like you. Yeah, it's yeah. true, like, like us at the time. But they, uh, they, it was pretty much sold out. There were a lot of people there, and... Um, they probably never had another rock party there ever again or something like that, but it, it, was, uh, it was pretty, um, that was probably their peak in New York. I don't know where else. I saw them at the Hippodrome, which was, which was sort of big, but, but it was only half the band then anyway. <clears throat> so uh, that kind of leads into your playing with the Demons, right? How's, that's um, Elliot Kidd, who has all these nefarious drug connections to the Dolls. Right, he was a co-field to the Dolls yeah. like that. So basically, I was in this band out in Brooklyn because I had started looking for other bands. So I would answer ads in the, in the Village Voice saying, looking for a guitar player. So I'd, I'd go and audition. I finally met these guys. Um, they were in Brooklyn. We, I think, I, I think it, we called it the Stray Cast. I think I did one or two shows on a mountain, Staten Island, something like that. But the other guitar player in the band knew, actually the first guitar player in the band was Freddie Bell, which is Mark Bell's twin brother. But he used to have these shock treatments he'd get every six months, so he'd have to go, he'd have to, he'd, he'd stop playing with the band because he couldn't keep it up after, it was so fucking weird. But it was funny, it's the twin brother, you know, before Mark, you know, was even famous. But, so anyway, this guy Marty was in the band, as, you know, after Freddie left, and he knew Elliot, so, and he knew Elliot was trying to start a band, so me and him went to see Elliot, and we decided to start the Demon. So, as Elliot was living in Chelsea at the time, and, uh, so, and he also had the, the connection to the Dolls because he dealt them coke. The Dolls let us use their rehearsal space on 23rd Street at the time because uh, you know, when they weren't in town, we could use it. So, and they were touring, so it, it made it a lot easier. And then when they got to first, uh, when the Demons did their first show at the 82 Club, because you know, Elliot had the connection to get the gigs, the... Um, we had just heard like the week before that the Dolls had broken up. Johnny and Jerry came back to New York and they had Richard Hell, so it was like the first punk supergroup, I guess you'd call it. And um, they were looking for another guitar player. So that night at the, at the first Demons gig, Jerry and Johnny showed up at, at the gig at the 82 Club. And, they, um, and after the show was over, Johnny pulls me aside and said, hey, you want to join a band? I'm going, no, no, no. I, you know, obviously I said, yeah, but it was like, um, he said, okay, you know, come to an audition next week. You know, so, so I went to some Midtown studio with him and Hell and Jerry. And we went through the songs, and it was, um, you know, they were good songs. They had Chinese Rocks and Blank Generation, and I think Wanna Be Love was there, too. So we went through it, and um, I thought, okay, great. So they said, okay, yeah, we'll get in touch. So then, like, a, like two months go by, I don't hear anything. I'm going, oh, I guess they must have got someone else, because I know they were auditioning other guys, too. They probably wanted a junkie or something like that, so whatever. <laughs> I wasn't a junkie yet. I was still innocent at the point. But it was... Uh, so finally, uh, the Demons are opening up for the, the three-piece Heartbreakers out at the, at the place in Queens called Coventry in Long Island City, I guess you call it. Um, and we did the show, and, and I saw them as a three-piece, and they were sort of like... You know they needed another guitar because it, it was like the sound was a little thin. And then... And then after the show, you know, I was sitting at a table at the bar or something like that, and Jerry just, you know, walks up to me and says, well, did you like those songs that you did at the rehearsal? I said, yeah, yeah I loved them. And then uh, he said, well, you want to join the band? And I said, no, no, of course not. But, yeah, it, it was great. So, so I said, yeah. And then, um, so, so now I'm a heartbreaker. 
So the next time there's a, so we rehearsed a few times where there's stories to tell behind that too, but the first gig that we, so the first gig that we have as a four-piece heartbreaker is at CBGB's, it was a 4th of July festival. And on Friday night I played my last Demons gig, about two in the morning to a couple of drunks in the audience, it was sort of boring. And the next night was the first heartbreakers gig. And it was like lines out the block, it was packed it to the ceiling, there was a million people there. Um, and it was like, you know, this is like night and day. I, I, Chris Stein from Blondie used to call me the rookie of the year back then. Because I, I came from, you know, from nowhere band into one of the biggest bands in New York. And overnight, you know, literally. But it was, um, so that was, that night Johnny walked up to me. He said, oh, I want you to meet someone, you know, before the show. And he walks in with this guy. He's, he's got this pink jumpsuit on. He's the ugliest guy I've ever seen. His face is, looks like, like, like oatmeal with raisins in it, and his hair is all stringy and hanging out. I'm going, John, who the fuck is this? And he goes, oh, hi, Walter, I want you to meet Ace Fraley. I'm going, holy shit, this is Ace Fraley? The ugliest guy on earth. Because I never saw him before without his makeup. And here he is with this, uh, I'm, I'm shaking his hand. I go, shit, you know, drinking. But <clears throat> that was the story. Yeah. So I got the idea that uh, Richard Hell was a little cool to you at first. As a member of the band, because you were like a urbane junkie. Well, yeah, I wasn't. I didn't have any creds yet. I, yeah, yeah. I was still just, you know, a, a guitar player in a band. So it was like, so when I would bring in a song like One Track Mine, I'd written the music. Um, uh, Hell would say, "Oh, I had to sing that." So, that. so he'd insist. On, so he thought he was a genius, and he he, he had he, he did have some sort of creds, you know, with the television stuff. So I didn't really have a the uh, the strength to say, "No, you can't. I want to sing or something like that," because he didn't want me singing all fuck. But, um, and, and, and so that was in the beginning. So Hell thought he was a poetic genius, and he, he used to say he only w he went into rock and roll because you couldn't sell poetry back then. You could sell, you, you could sell music with poetry attached to it. So that's how he did it. But um, after six months or so, it came out. He wanted to sing all the songs. He didn't want Johnny to write anything. He didn't want me to write anything unless I, unless I let him sing it. So it just got sort of unbearable after a while. He was just trying to take over and it didn't work. Was the original name of the Heartbreakers the Junkies? No, no. I had heard that before. Yeah, no. There was a certain point where we were living in England that um, Jerry and Johnny got into the heads, oh, we should change the name of the band to the Junkies. I'm going, you must be out of your fucking mind. <laughs> <laughs> and, and even our manager in the record said, it would be fine if you guys weren't junkies. But we were all, <laughs> but we were all junkies. So it's like every cop would be, would be looking to you know, you'd take you down at the first chance he got. If, if, if we were straight or weren't, you know, or speed freaks or something like that, it'd be fine. But you couldn't call yourself junkies and actually be junkies in the audience. There's also another story that I had heard, which was that I think we had always thought that there were two bands just independently called the Heartbreakers. And wasn't it something like during those dark days of the breakup of the Dolls in Florida that they went to Gainesville or Tampa and saw this guy, Bucktooth guy with some band who was never going to make it and kind of took the name? Well, see, see, back then, Tom Petty was known, his band had another name, the, the Ruck Shots or Fuck Shots or something like that. I forget the name. Mud Crutch. Mud, mud Crutch or Mud Crotch, whatever it was. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he was like, uh, so he didn't have the heartbreaking name yet. And then, so, so when, when Jerry and Johnny came back, they had, you know, they told me that, you know, it was Sylvain who came up with the, you know, with the heartbreaker's name. So Jerry and Johnny, you know, took it. And then later on, when we got to England, Tom Petty started to get big. And actually, there was a point where our rec company started sending 
letters to their record company saying this season does this and all shit like that. But the point was sort of moot after like another year or two because the Heartbreakers had broken up and, and Tom Petty was going on to be much bigger than um, than we ever got. So it, it was like uh, then it was just didn't matter. Mm -hmm. But that's when they started calling us Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers as opposed to the Heartbreakers. Right. So. Um because of Johnny's connections to Malcolm McLaren, et cetera, you guys end up on the Anarchy Tour with the Sex Pistols, of which maybe six of 30 shows or yeah, something yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, actually happen. Um, but talk about that, too, because you guys were a little bit older than that crowd that was going on. It was obviously a... Was a, I mean, you were part of it and leading it, but it was also like a younger thing, and I'm sure it was obvious. Right, we took different too. drugs at the time, too. The, yeah. the, 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 they were, but it was... Um, so so Malcolm had called... I think he called the Dolls first, and the Dolls turned it down, but then he called us, so we said, let's do it. We had no idea what was going on over in England. It was like, it was a whole different world. There wasn't any internet or, or whatnot, and I had read in some, I think a local New York paper had an article about the British scene back you know, six months before or something, but we didn't know because we didn't hear any music. You couldn't hear it. You didn't bring the music over here. So, so we got over there and we landed on the same night as that Bill Grundy show where they had the big scandal in, with the Sex Pistols. And um, we didn't know anything about it when we landed. We landed and Malcolm picked us up with uh, his assistant in a limo and they took us into town. And Malcolm was like, his eyeballs were twirling in his head. It was, it was like weird. And you, he could barely talk. I'm going, what, what the fuck is wrong with him? And he's going like, oh, my band just cursed on TV. I'm going like, so someone cursed on TV? That, that's like bad or something like that? Or what? <laughs> I mean, you didn't do that. You didn't curse on American TV, but it was more or less people. I'm, I'm sure people got it out every now and then, something like that. But, but this thing causes this incredible... Uh, storm of publicity just because of this, you know, a couple of curse words that they mentioned on TV, which is a live show, which I didn't think they even had back then. And apparently Bill Grundy was drunk as well. He, he was egging them on. But every newspaper was covered on the front page of all these people, you know, the storm, the filth and the fury, and the outrage, and parents were kicking their TVs in and stuff like that. There was like, and press was following us all over on that tour. They'd, they'd be following behind us in motorcycles and like in scooters or some shit if they could. To, to find. And they'd come to the hotel rooms and like it'd be this big, you know, constant like bash of pressure. You couldn't buy that amount of publicity if you wanted to. And it was just like incredible. So right away, we're part of, of the aristocracy of British punk. Now, British punk at the time, you know, they were all a little younger. We were like in our mid-20s. They were like in the early 20s. So they were still taking like LSD and pot and speed. And we're going, these drugs don't, don't work for us anymore. We, we need some real drugs. So, uh, but the ones who would, were strung out on junkies was like the older rock stars, like Jimmy Page and Keith Richards, who we managed to run into in an ice cream parlor one day with John Phillips. But there were two bums. It, it, we're in this ice cream parlor on King's Road. And there, there were two, like, bums in the corner. They were all, like, hunched over and dirty. Sitting there. And we thought there were some vagrants. And then our manager says, shit, you know who those guys are over there? It's like, it's Keith Richards and John Phillips. So I'm going, going like, holy shit. But that's another story. <clears throat> so, so anyway, so th there's this incredible scene going on in, in, in Britain. And, this, and the Anarchy Tour just, it just makes it into this next level of, uh, of, of madness. It, it was really just like the crowds would be crazy. There, there was a gig in Wales that we played. You know, one of the gigs that, that let us play that... 
there was a local priest in the parking lot across the street with a, a mic set up and a little PA system with had some of the parents and a lot. And he's preaching to them, don't let your kids go and see the devil in the theater across the street like that. It was sheer madness. And the kids are all in the theater going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, Fuck yeah. So it was like, it was just crazy. And uh, the other bands, the Clash, were with us on the tour as well as the Pistols. And the damn play with us, but they weren't on the bus with us. They were in a, a, they came in a separate band, van for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. But that was the Anarchy tour. And then, like, the other big thing was Britain. The record companies were signing bands to real deals, as opposed to like the the CBGB's records over here or, or uh, Marty Tao and like that. There were shitty deals. You wouldn't get much of an advance money, and you wouldn't really make any money unless the record sold. But over there, they were giving you. The angle was smaller, so it caught on quicker, but, but the music scene was bigger. And they were giving like real money to the bands for, for advances, and you know, they put us up in, in apartments and stuff like that. So it, it, was, it was a lot more on a professional level as opposed to uh, in New York, where they'd, they'd give, you a, you know, give you a room at the Bowery Hotel, the, the Bum Hotel on top of CBGB, if you're, if you're lucky. <laughs> you know, and it's, um, you guys, um, go over there and you sign, I mean, talk about drug stories, like, okay, so there's, you do one track mind, you right. sign to this label called Track, track Records, <laughs> which, which is like um, Speedy Keen from Thunderclap the Newman, Newman yeah. something in the air is, I guess these guys are like crazy speed freaks and you guys are like junkies. And Speedy Keen was, was a speed <laughs> freak, yeah, and, and, and Motorhead would hang out with us too and they were like speed freaks. But they got along with Billy, because Billy was a speed freak too, and so we converted him into junk after a few years. But, uh, but that was um, kind of like, I mean, like that, that's the original recording of LAMF and, right. and all that stuff, and it's like, it was just like, it's just like one of those classic car crash kind of rock scenarios, you know? It's, well, yeah, it's, that's but, what, it, it's and magical too, but yeah, I'm just yeah, saying that's kind of what comes No, the original it. album when it came out had a terrible sound to it. And we, you know, Jerry and Johnny was swearing it was a mix and it wasn't a mix because it would sound great in the studio. It would only, when it went out to the pressing plant and came back on vinyl was when it had that, that muffled sound to it. They sent it back, they tried Abbey Road, they tried a million different studios and, and mixing places, but it just never worked out until they finally remixed it or remastered it in the 80s, and then it came out on CD and cassette, it would sound 10 times better. But at the time, that was sort of the end, the beginning of the end for the Heartbreakers, because you know, we did the tours, but then people whispered in Johnny's ear that um, you, you, could, you could do better if you went solo, stuff like that, so, so that's how that started. But, and, um, and where did the live album fit in? Because for Live me, and Maxes? Was, yeah, oh. Live and Maxes. Because that, that was kind of like a, a comeback after a breakup, is that? Is that well, yeah, the band was broken up, but every time we come back to New York, uh, um, that, you know, with John, we would be in New York, and Jerry was, actually Jerry wasn't on those records, but um, we, we'd want money, so we'd, we'd do some shows. It was like, we call them rent parties or what like that, because it was basically, we'd get some quick cash, we'd get some quick drugs and, and enjoy it. So, and the Heartbreakers together could always draw more than Johnny did on his own, so we would always uh, do the Max's shows, and Max's decided, okay, we're gonna record an album. Which came out great. That album was good. It, it, it really caught the heartbreak as, as it really was. But it was a different drummer than we normally had, and it just you know, we had a big mistake. We left on the record that the beginning to I think it was all by myself. We had to stop and start over again. But it just showed us. It showed people that that we were just like a non-professional band, I guess at the time. But even the stage raps. I mean, those were like mind blowing at the time for for somebody like who was a teenager like me, like listening to these guys. Like oh wow, dabble, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, no, but also. Like how like intense this 
like the energy was, right? Yeah, Johnny and I would be constantly like, you know, ragging each other on stage and stuff like that. Yeah, pretty amazing. So what was the, um, what was, I don't know if it's, uh, the question is, what was the end of the Heartbreakers or what was the low point of the Heartbreakers? But it was, it was if you're starting a band as junkies, it's something that's doomed to crash and burn eventually, right? Yeah, yeah, well, of course. It, it yeah, was yeah. just, you know, it doesn't no matter how long it lasted. Although the Rolling Stones stayed together <laughs> for 50 years or some shit, but uh, it was... Uh, the, so, if the record sold more, then uh, and we got more pop on the record, we might have stayed together longer, but we also would have been dead a lot earlier because we, if we had more money, we would have been you know shooting up uh, constantly. So it would have been a nightmare. So, the uh, at, so after the band broke up and Johnny stayed in England and did the um, the Memory album stuff like mm -hmm. that, then he would come back to New York and we would do shows for money, and, and that's what the, the whole thing was. So they did the Live at Max's album, and then uh, they recorded a lot of other shows over the years, but, but I don't know, Jungle Records in London has all those old recordings, so they keep on re-releasing the same songs on 20 different <laughs> platforms. Gets away with it. So then your story takes an interesting turn, too, because you end up working on Wall Street uh, right. after this. So, okay. um, but you're obviously like a function, like there's many, I remember when I, coming to New York, there's a lot of people who are very functional would still have the drug habits. Um, so yeah, just kind of talk about that collision coming from the heartbreakers to, to Wall Street. To okay. Wall Street. So basically, this is the early 80s. So I'm broke, I'm living with different people in and around Manhattan, or sometimes I, I have to go out to Long Island to my parents' house, something like that. And um, I'm still strung out. So. My father, who, uh, who was a retired banker, you know, like a retail, a branch banker, retail banker, he knew this guy who was working for a computer company that uh, he was retired too, but they went into banks and handled corporate takeovers and mergers, meaning um, if a company gets taken over by another company, they have to take that company's stock and, and exchange it for either new stock or cash or whatever. You know, it, it's just the way mergers and takeovers work. So they needed temps to go in and help you know, count all these stock certificates up and add them and then cut checks or cut new stock for, for the people who, who owned the stock. So that's how I get into it. It was a temp. You'd work for three or four weeks, and I'd be off for a week or two, and my dad would go back in and work and stuff. And so I, I just started to get a pick. This is, this is a whole different world. This is finance. And it, it's, even though I was, I was still showing out, I'd run out to lunch and, and buy dope and get off in the bathroom and stuff like that. Um, it's starting to sort of ring a bell in my head. Like, well, this is like, this is, the world of finance is 100 times bigger than the world of music. It's just like the whole world runs around on finance, whether it's you know, banks or brokerage firms or whatever, or insurance companies. It's all money, and money makes the world go around. So basically, the more I've learned about it, the more interesting this whole stocks and bonds and warrants and whatever got to me. So it was sort of picking up my head. So the, the company hires me full-time as this thing, and then and after a year or so, I jump to a regular brokerage firm, where there's more like knowledge coming in about how trade settlements, and you buy it this day, it settles that day, the money goes here, there's legal items, there's all sorts of shit that, you know, you learn. And it's, it, was, it was interesting, even though I was still running out in, at, at lunchtime to buy dope somewhere in, in Williamsburg or the Lower East Side, it was like, it was starting to, to, to come together in my head. And I was still playing gigs, you know, with different bands in, in the city, but it was just like, I wasn't making enough money to live off it. And then, so finally, um, 
It's actually, once I went out to lunch and got busted in Williamsburg and spent like two days in jail out in Crown Heights somewhere or something like that, and then um, came back. But they actually let me stay because I told them a story that I got into an accident and there was 20 people dead or some bullshit like that. <laughs> <laughs> and they swallowed it. They let, me, they let me stay. So anyway, finally, by, by, uh, by Memorial Day weekend in 1988, I finally get off drugs. I, I stopped. I, I had a few days of methadone, a few days of the these blood pressure pills that, that kills the uh, withdrawal symptoms. This is about the hundredth time I tried stopping taking drugs since the, the, the late 70s. But, and it finally worked. I think I did it once after that, like a couple of months later, and that was I never went back to it again. So this opens up a lot. And then all of a sudden, I'm doing good in this job I'm working. I'm at this broker's firm. My boss likes me now, because I'm not sneaking out lunch to get high anymore. And then, you know, within like, uh, Two years, two or three years or so, I'm in charge of 125 people running a whole trading, a, a settlement operation, trade settlements, which is different than trade tradings. But, and it was like, you know, making three or four hundred a grand a year, which in the 80s or well, 90s was pretty good. And this is like, on, so by day, I'm, I'm, I'm with my suit and tie, going to work on Wall Street, you know, playing with millions of dollars in different stocks and bonds trading. And at night, I'm hanging out at the clubs, you know, playing gigs and stuff like that. People from my job would come to see me at the Continental and stuff like that. And, they, and they'd be staring. So, uh, they'd be talking about this. You, you, you look up on stage. That's my boss. Go figure. And it, would be, it was like, ridiculous. My closet at home, there'd be one side would be the suits and ties for work. And the other side would be all the beat up stage clothes. So it was like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It existed. But it was... It was, it was just like this schizophrenic existence, but to me it was fun. What do you think, the, um, in retrospect, the, uh, the attraction, I mean, we've, we all know this question, but the attraction of that drug to particularly the artistic type, the artistic side? Uh, yeah, I don't know what it, why it's concentrated in the artistic world. It's like, um, it, it's sort of... Like, I know when I first started doing it in the Heartbreakers, I, I think it was one of our first rehearsals, you know, Jerry's, uh, Johnny going, oh, uh, we got to get Walter shot up so he gets used to this shit. So, like <laughs> so the sh between him and Dee Dee and, and uh, Dee Dee Ramone and, and, J and Jerry, they managed to, to shoot me up. and some, I was nervous and blood was squirting out and stuff like that. But I said, oh, this, it isn't so bad. And then the first few times you do it, you know, it, it feels like shit. You feel like you're going to get sick or something like that. Cause I had snorted it once back in college just to try it, but it was just like, you know, what's all the big fuss about? This stuff sucks. But the more you do it, the more you get involved with it. But as far as artistic-wise, uh, there's, I know from, there's sort of a feeling like when you're doing this, you're being, like, uh, rebelling, you're being an outlaw, you're breaking the law. It's like sort of this sort of function, like, uh, you're, you're cool or whatever like that, whatever the fuck. It, it's, it's stupid, but that's what people do when they're stupid. But it was like... Uh, so that's what, really, that's the attraction of it. That, and it seems to go, like, you know, all through the art world, you know, between the beats in the 50s. I used to run into Gregory Corso in, 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 these, in, in Chelsea Hotel, buying dope like we were, all these different, you know, poets and what have you. I remember uh, when I first um, came back to the city in the mid-'80s, I was living off Avenue D, and there were these um, oh, those places where you would, uh, you'd have lines of artists in suits waiting to get cop dope, and you'd yeah, put yeah, your money yeah. in the bucket, and you'd pull it up the bucket and hope something came down. Yeah, there'd be the bucket, or you'd be yeah. lining up the stairs, and then the cops would come, and everybody running out, or you'd run up to the roof or some shit to hide. It's a whole, 
It was a job. Be out there at five in the morning yeah, or three yeah. in the morning or, or whatever. It was just this endless uh, drug mess. Yeah. So and it took so many people. I mean. Oh yeah, yeah. Every, it took know. my whole band. Yeah. I actually didn't take Billy, but uh, <clears throat> and Jerry died of meningitis. But but they, Jerry was on methanol for the last like thirty years or, or twenty years of his life. So that sort of melts you away inside as well. Yeah, John was on everything he'd get his hands on, and he lasted long enough. But mm -hmm. uh, and then you continued, you know, still making music. You know, the Waldo single. I remember there was talk about that for a long time before that came out. And then I remember there was, uh, you know, we'd see your shows, and I'm, I'm now I'm fast forwarding a little bit, but um, you, Waldo's and the Bullies used to play together a lot, and yeah, Johnny yeah, Heff yeah. was a hero of 9/11. Yeah, um, yeah. Who fi fireman who died at that, but. Um, Talk about like that era of like '90s punk. I mean, this is a club owned by Jesse Mallon. Uh, there was this whole new generation that you were kind of hanging out with and kind of a central part of, even as while you were doing your other gigs. Yeah, so it sort of had a resurgence. I mean, there was a few clubs in New York. The Continental was a great place for punk. CBGBs are still there too, but but the, they were starting to have weird bands. And and Max's was there, till, I guess 2000 or something like that. But um, the Continental was the best place to play at the time. But there were a lot of local bands who were sort of hanging out. Nobody was really making any any big moves anywhere. Um, Blondie had already made it, and uh, I guess I don't know who else was around. The, the other bands that were from back in the seventies, but there was there were newer bands coming up, and it was a it was a fun scene. So it was healthier than it was in. The, although there there were quite a few junkies on that day, day in the nineties as well, but um, it was. Uh, it was more fun because I was working. I'd be there playing at night or on the weekend. I had a couple of different bands with the Waldos, and before that was the Hurricanes and the Heroes and stuff like that. Uh, but the Waldos sort of stuck together the most, and then um, and then people started dying in the '90s. First, my the original drummer died in like '93. Um, then Tony, the bass player, dies in '95, and, and then my younger brother dies in '97. So. I'm getting to the point where I'm getting sick of this shit. People are dying like flies on me and stuff like that. Johnny and Jerry had already been gone. So I, I, I was ready to just stop playing music. And then um, Todd Youth, who just died a couple months ago, he said, oh, let's get together and do a few gigs. And then those Japanese guys I play with now, they wanted to play with me as well. So I said, uh, okay, I'll do a few gigs for the hell of it. Like that. And then, so now I've been playing with these guys for like 20 years, It's uh, at least since 97, 98. <clears throat> so um, we'll start wrapping this up, but uh, I kind of want to talk about. Um, uh, well, first, of, first of all, like you know, you've. Uh, I want to talk about the legacy of LAMF because not only not just because you're going to be performing that here uh, uh, coming up, but um, I, uh, I mean, for you to be able to put together that band, for instance, last year with. Um, Mike Ness. Oh, oh yeah, 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 and, yeah. Uh, and Clem Burke and Glenn Matlock. Glenn right? Matlock, yeah. Right. I mean, that's pretty impressive of an array of people who want to pay homage to LAMF 40 years later. Right. Well, Glenn and Clem I've known since yeah. back in the early days, and and Mike apparently uh, Jesse knew, and he was uh, he was always a big Heartbreakers fan. So yeah. just and the year before with Wayne Kramer and what yeah. have you, the, the other guys. But there were so many waves of bands that came out, you know, trying to like. For better or for worse, tried to be as badass as the, the Heartbreakers, you know. And you had your Guns and Roses, and you had like whatever, you know. I can name all these yeah, yeah, bands, yeah. but um, that's the point. Or, or Mike Ness's band, you know, Social Distortion, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. You know, they want to be as 
you know. Bad, bad, yeah. yeah. It, well, it's the image. You know, they all want the image of the, uh, you know, we were sort of naturals. You know, not that I was ever bad or anything, but it was like, um, it was a, a more of a, we projected that image. You know, Johnny and Jerry had it with the dolls, stuff like that. The dolls were good. Uh, but the dolls were dominated by David, who was like the control freak of the band. So he was sort of more or less, that's what, why Johnny and Jerry left. But there, there were a lot of bands that, that had that image, you know, that, that rock and roll, you know, the devil be damned or what have you. But that was, uh, that's the whole spirit of uh, what, what the, that music's all about. And, um, you know, you just had a milestone birthday and you have uh, all this. Yes, and you, I'm, um, I'm 12 again. <laughs> and you, um, you know, you've seen a lot. Just what is your, what is your take on this rock and roll path? you know, all these years later, I mean, because obviously you think, you, I mean, you're retired now, but like the, you work, the, the Wall Street thing must have really made you have a good balance. I know like I, raising a family, it makes you look so differently at like how you. Uh, well, yeah, you bring your, your animal instincts under control and stuff yeah. like that, or try and get up every day for work or what yeah, have yeah. you, but it, it gives you sort of perspective. But it's like, you know, the music is sort of uh, eternal or what have you, or it, it doesn't die. Right, you know, like rock and roll is more or less like a, 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 an extinct, I'm not extinct, but it's not really one of the major art forms these days. It's either hip hop or, or country or pop or what like that. The, uh, it's not, you know, rock is still there, it'll always be there, but it's not the, uh, the thing that drives the youth crazy like it did back in the 60s and 70s or even the 50s. Uh, so, but you just keep doing it because it's, it's like, you know, what else can you do? It's, it's, it's like, you know, I'm not going to change, you know, now and start, you know, singing in a church choir or something like that because it's like, uh, it, it's like, this is what I enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> well, great. Well, thanks. So we're going to uh, have a few questions. Uh, Tony Mann uh, is going to uh, come out, I think. <clears throat> Tony. Tony Mann. Okay, so... Um, uh, we um, will take a few. He'll have a few questions from the crowd, and he also has something to show you. Come on, everybody! Happy birthday to you! Happy birthday to you! Happy birthday, dear Walter! Happy birthday to you! Oh, how nice! Yeah, man. It's a pile of shit. How nice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right. Let's hear it for Walter Lore. Come on. Today. All right. Uh, I have a few questions uh, from the audience. All right. So uh, from Ben Lemer. I think he's here tonight. Uh, could you talk about hanging out on the bus on the Anarchy Tour? Okay, that was fun because, you know, we had never met the guys before. And apparently, like, when we first met Steve Jones and Paul Cook uh, the night we landed or the next night when Malcolm came to take us out for dinner, they were standing in the, in the lobby of the hotel and they were just being real quiet. We said, what the fuck is wrong with these guys? Uh, and it turns out they were, like, in awe of Johnny because of the dolls. They had seen the dolls and they were there, like, a year or two earlier. So they were sort of, like, they looked up to Johnny a lot like that. But... Getting on the bus, apart from the, the madness that was going on around the bus with all the photographers and press guys, you know, beating on the windows, you know, trying to get to talk to people, it was just like, 
it was fun. We were all, you know, we were forever drinking all over the bus. They, they had beers all the time. And um, they'd be like the three bands plus a few of the, uh, some, you know, the managers and uh, whatever, a few, the roadies and what have you. But it was, uh, you know, they're all great guys. Like that. Joe Strummer was the only one who was a bit weird because he'd be wearing all these, um, he'd be reading all these, these political tracks and stuff like that. So, so we'd be throwing sandwiches at him on the bus because he was just like, he wouldn't stop reading these stupid, you know, Marxists or whatever the fuck he was, he was into. These weird po politics or some shit. But uh, the Pistols were great. Even Rotten was great. I, I mean, Rotten is a whole, a, a, a study case of personality because we would get along fine on the bus, you know, and the buses and the hotels because we get to the town um, and we'd find out the gig was canceled because of all this, this controversy. So we'd, uh, so we'd go to the bar and stay there all night because the hotel bars could stay open later than pubs. They'd be open until like, you know, two in the morning if you wanted. So we'd be there all night drinking. So Rotten, you know, was like the rest of it. We'd be sitting around drinking. He'd be funny, we'd be telling jokes. Then, but if someone walked in the room uh, who was like a press or another guest, he would, sh it would turn his face around, basically. It was just like, shut down, turn his personality, and turn into this scumbag. Like, if you ask him what time it was, he'd say, ah, fuck you, you dull bug. And like, oh, like, you know, it's, it's three in the morning, it's three in the afternoon. So he would just develop this personality, like his rotten personality. And so, but then if the guy went away or we were back on the bus, he'd be funny. I mean, friends making jokes and stuff like that. But as as the years went on, uh, he, that you know that little switch that turned yeah. the personality it broke somewhere. So, so, now, yeah. so now he's a scumbag all the time. So, yeah. If you see any of those interviews on on TV with that new punk thing coming sure, out, sure, sure, he's just he's a drunk now and everything else. So, but uh, but he was just like it broke something like that. But anyway, the, but that was but the bus was great. It was fun, except, except that we we only got to play like five six shows out of uh, twenty six booked. Well, I had a friend like that. His name was Gigi Allen. Same thing. Uh, who? Gigi Allen. Oh, okay, Gigi Allen. Yeah. He was Kevin when he was hanging around with me. One more person came in the room, he was Gigi. Yes, yeah, like yeah, a flip, the switch flip. So from uh, Binky Phillips from the Planets. Binky. He wanted, would like to know what Ramon songs you played on. I played on three albums. It was Subterranean Jungle. I played on everything. And then the next two albums I would play on like maybe half the songs. They'd call me in. Like Subterranean Jungle, we would like I rehearse with them and learn the songs, stuff like that. Uh, uh, the next two, um, Animal Boy and Too Tough to Die, we'd play like maybe four or five of the songs. I would just have to learn them in the studio, stuff like that. They didn't go up, but it was uh, the Subterranean Jungle. We'd go in the studio, and then we went out to the, the uh, recording studio in Long Island to do it. So that was a whole yeah, experience. I know that Ed Stasium, as well as Tommy Ramone, played lead on. Johnny never played the leads. John couldn't play lead. Yeah. That's why on the albums I played on, he puts my name in a little tiny thing <laughs> inside. Special fact, he didn't even say what I fucking, what I fucking played on the thing. Because right. he didn't want anyone to know. <clears throat> From uh, Alex Patsos, uh, is it true everyone in the band wanted their own version of LAMF with their own mixes? Everybody wanted themselves louder. Well, not Billy. Billy was in out of space, if I thought. Right. But, um, <laughs> but it was Jerry who kept on. John would agree with Jerry, but then John, you know, didn't think Jerry was right. It was Jerry who kept on insisting, "Oh, it's the mixer, the mixer, the mixer, the bad." So, so they actually let him go into a studio for a week that summer before the album came out. And he came out, you know, the fucking thing sounded like old drums and no guitar. Was like, <laughs> right. So it was like <laughs> they wouldn't let it go. So like that, and it, it was. It wasn't. Uh, 
you know, the mixes were fine as they were. It's just the depressing. You always screwed it up. You know, got lousy. Okay. Uh, all right, from Steph Lanyon. I don't, are you here? I don't know. Yeah, she's there. Oh, oh, you are here, yes. <coughs> oh, there you are. Uh, uh, what is pirate love? I don't know, I didn't she write has it. Her Johnny wrote it, I have no idea. <laughs> okay, and what does LAMF stand for? Let's all make friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually what the British thought it meant. When we put you over there, they had no idea. Uh, okay, from uh, Brian Machutin. Uh, uh, do you, are you a fisherman or why lure? Well, my real name is pronounced lure, but it's spelled L-U-H-R. So I just changed it to lure to, to make it, to protect the innocent ones of my family. So. <laughs> All right. And, and he also wanted to know, what's the most fucked up thing you or a bandmate ever did that they regretted, even now, whatever, years later? Ever did they regret it? Um... Regret anything. <laughs> you know, regret like wasting so many years being a drug addict or something like that, but that's like, uh, there's nothing, you know, we never really got into any knockdown, drag out fights, stuff like that. I mean, Johnny would get loony sometimes, but Jerry had the solution. He, he, he do, yeah, yeah, but Johnny would, get, Johnny would get crazy sometimes. You're so kind. And Jerry, in the dolls, they used to tell Jerry, listen, Johnny's going out of his mind, you know, go take care of him. So, so Jerry would take Johnny into the room, give him a couple of whacks to the head. <laughs> And Johnny would calm down for like six months or something like that because he was in speed in the dolls and later on got in the dope. But he would do the same thing in the heartbreak. But, but in the heartbreak, we would sit in the hotel room and John would have gotten crazy. And then Jerry would just say, you want to punch in the head, John? And, he, and, and, and he'd go, no. And, and so he'd, he'd, stop act, he'd stop acting like an idiot. But there was nothing, I, I don't know, you know, we never really did anything bad to each other or stuff like that. There you guys nothing, were pretty good to each other, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I don't regret anything. It was like, me. <clears throat> you know, we'd, we'd make fun of one another, stuff like that, but I never ripped any of them off. And John used to rip us off when he tried to get. Yeah. I mean, one of the first things, when we started doing shows, the guys would go to the club owners and say, oh, can I get advance on the show? So if, if we're going to make, like, you know, 500 or or $1,000, I said, John would go in and take an advance. The first couple of shows, when we got to the show, we played a show, and, then the, and the money would all be gone because Johnny would have taken the whole fucking thing in advance. So, it was like, <laughs> so then we had to tell the club owners, you know, you could just give Johnny like a quarter of what he's due or, or 10% or some shit like right. that. But, but he was, you had to, you couldn't let him, you know, take advantage of it because he would. But, but that was Johnny. He all learned right. how to do it. Very good. And uh, one last thing, maybe could you speak about... Uh, uh, guy was a good friend of mine, uh, Lee Black Childers, yeah. and uh, Gil Higgins, how they worked with you. Okay, so the Heartbreakers were, um, they were big in New York, but we, uh, we hadn't got to England yet. And I think Hella just left because he was, uh, well, we kicked him out basically, because he was trying to take over the band. But we still didn't have a real manager. There were a couple of people who were interested, you know, they, some people gave us time in the studio to record shit up in Yonkers or out in Staten Island. But there was no one who was really taking care of us. We had to we booked our own gigs, stuff like that. And it was just more or less like, we really need someone to do the business. So Lee was taking pictures of us every now and then. He'd, he'd come and do photo sessions. And, and Johnny and Jerry knew him from the Dolls. And he was also hanging out in the punk scene in New York. So, th th he, so at some point, he said, you know, you want a manager? I can manage you. Or John, uh, John asked him, you know, do you want to be a manager? And, and you know, handle all this, this shit for it to be easy. So, he said, yeah, he'd never done it before, but he knew what it was like because he used to hang out with Bowie and, you know, mm -hmm. he, used to, he'd do a lot of, he was like an assistant manager to Bowie stuff. 
So, and with Iggy and stuff, he did shit. But um, yeah, he was vice president of Main Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he would, uh, he had the experience of, or a bit of it or the familiarity with the whole, you know, milieu. But uh, so, and then we went to England. We brought Gail along as because she had been in the scene for ages too. She was one of uh, friends with Johnny's girlfriend and stuff like that. So I had known her for years as well. So. She came over and was the, uh, this, like, I guess, road manager, assistant manager, whatever you want to call it. You know, Lee would handle all the booking and stuff, and Gail would make sure we got paid and what have you like that, and got us up and kept us from overdosing and what have you. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks, thanks to her for doing that. And thank yeah. you for, uh, thanks to Walter, everybody. Here for Walter Lord. Um, he's going to be here Sunday, May 25th. He's going to perform... LAMF in its entirety. Don't miss that. If you, I think it's, it's one of the best albums of all time. Is it the Saturday or the Sunday? It's a Sunday. Okay. The other day, I'm Bowery. Awesome. Come on, everybody. Let's hear it for Walter Lord. Thanks. Thank you. Saturday is here. Sunday is Sunday's Bowery. Okay. And we'll uh, see you. Um, thank you, everybody, for coming. We'll see you next month. We have a very special surprise. Sound man to the stars, Night Bob. Night Bob. Thank Night Bob. you. <clears throat>